You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. kind of gotten in trouble with a lot of stories I've been telling on tour. <laughs> because no matter how I try to warn people, they still gotta have their muffin in the Starbucks in the big box store, and then they overhear something like guts. <laughs> and it just ruins that muffin. <laughs> and so this year, I really thought it would be wise. It would be the, the adult, grown-up, mature thing to do. We won't tell. To censor myself. And then I thought, you know, it would be a lot easier to censor you. So, so with that in mind, I brought earplugs. Earplugs and earplugs. <laughs> Boxes of earplugs. All right. <laughs> Woo! Earplugs! <laughs> yeah! Oh, and then beyond that, I just want to say that the world is full of wonderful, sweet, profound, whimsical, sensitive, politically correct stories, but tonight will not be. Yeah! <laughs> so how many folks here have never been to an author reading? Okay. This is how author readings go. <laughs> First, there's this part where you're just testing the microphone, and then we will, uh, I'll read a story I wrote specifically only for the tour, because I figure if you're going to make the effort to be here, I want to give you something that only you will get. That's not a published story that nobody else is going to hear until you tape it and put it on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and we will play some games and we will answer some questions. So, is every book I write deals with objects as well as people. And there are always objects that kind of morph as a, as a metaphor across the sort of course of a story. They mean something different from the first time you see them to the last time you see them. And one of my favorite examples is Rosemary's Baby by Ira Levin. What is the key object in Rosemary's Baby? Put your hand up or I won't see you. What is the key object in Rosemary's Baby? Thanks. What? Be more specific. Um, uh, herbs to help you conceive. That's it. What is inside? Rosemary. Uh, no. <laughs> the necklace. Yes. Perfect. So you win a book. So this is uh, this is obscene interiors which is a really funny, dirty, small press book that came out last year. And, uh, and that's how the game will kind of work, is 
If you answer, well, no, no, in this case, if you inflate the sex doll first, <laughs> you'll win a book. And I've got equal numbers of male and female sex dolls. So we're gonna do two rounds of this, and let's start the first one. So. Oh boy. You need some help here passing this out? And you can't start blowing till you get the signal, okay? So wait for the signal. Male sex doll. Male. Sex doll in here. I gotta get on an airplane later. set, blow. Come on, blow the dolls up, and as soon as you get the doll fully inflated, as soon as it's all the way blown up, hold it up by its ankles, and if it stands up, it's fully inflated. Hold it over your head by its ankles. First boy, first girl, win a free book. Somebody's almost won up there. Almost. Good God! Almost! Okay, okay, we got a girl winner. Boy, who's the first boy? Come on! Come on, come on, come on! Oh, you gotta squeeze the little valve or it won't work. Do we have a boy? Okay, I'll let you So, we've had our first two winners, and what, what folks won is a, is a collection of short stories that came out this spring called Knock 'em Stiff, which is just an incredible book of stories, and it's one of the best things I've read in years. So, enjoy Knock 'em Stiff. And again, all of my books are full of objects as well as people. And, uh, and we'll do another round of the dolls after we do some other things. So, Rick, do you want to take it? Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this evening we're going to give you a brief history 
of Chuck Palahniuk. So, Chuck, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the past few years, and the one conversation we've really never had, we always talked about whatever books you had coming out, but we've never talked about, you know, how you got your start writing. So I want you to, you know, look deep into my eyes, take yourself back to five years old, Chuck Palahniuk, when did the writing start? And why? Boy, it wasn't when I was five. Um, <laughs> because I, uh, I was maybe the last person in my grade school to learn how to read. And I just, I just, I couldn't make sense of the whole subject, predicate, verb thing. And I remember just weeping over my workbooks in my kitchen, in my mom's kitchen. And because it didn't make any sense, it was like the clock. The clock didn't make any sense either. And, uh, and I think the fact that when it finally crystallized and I caught up, I was, it was such an enormous relief, it was such a joy that I just really attached to this one skill. So, Well, tell us about Mr. Olson. Oh, Mr. Fifth Olson. grade, well, that's your earliest known Chuck Palahniuk document. It's going to be worth a boatload of money someday if it isn't already. It doesn't exist. Mr. Olson was my fifth grade teacher, and he was the only male teacher at Burbank High School in Burbank, Washington, and he said, uh, he said, you know, you can, you can write little stories. You're really good at this, and I was just so desperate for a father figure because at that point my father, my father was enormously popular with the ladies at that point, <laughs> and he had way better things to do than come home and be a father, but uh, Mr. Olson. Mr. Olson said, keep writing those stories. And so I, I just wrote and wrote and wrote little stories. And uh, that's pretty much how I got started. What were your stories about? Uh, Do you remember? They, oh, shit. <laughs> this is so awful. But at the time, whenever there was any kind of uh, school board agenda, they, my teachers would turn it into a school assignment. So all of our art projects were about making big posters to pass the bond levy. <laughs> <laughs> and all of oh, our writing hi. assignments were to end the Vietnam War. And everything had a political agenda to it. And at the time, you know, we didn't think anything of it. So we were just, you know, these fifth graders, these little, what, 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds, you know, writing the end the war in Southeast Asia posters without any idea what we were doing. Uh, so most of my stories were about, you know, Cambodia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that explains a lot. Now, I, I want to ask you, y your parents were divorced when you were young, and you kind of went back and forth between living in, in a trailer park, am I correct, and, and living on your grandfather's farm. Yeah, we, uh, we had a single white trailer across from the Burbank Tavern. I put my hand over my mouth. Across from the Burbank Tavern, which my mother will deny it, but it's in all of those sort of, uh, you know, cheesy, jerky home movies that we've got. You know, kids mm -hmm. rolling the snowballs, making oh, the snowman sure. in front of the single wide. And when we ran out of money, we had to move in with my grandparents. Well, I, could you talk a little bit about the contrast between like living in a trailer park and living on a big farm? That it must have made some kind of an impression on you. No, you know. <laughs> well, they were both boring as all get out. Uh, no. 
So Chuck Palahniuk's in high school now. He he's he's is he popular? Is he a jock? I, is he a, a, a nerd? Uh, he's a cipher. He is a let me out of here. Uh, I started working full time when I was fourteen, I think, bussing tables in a diner and washing dishes. Was that legal? I mean, in, in California, you had to be sixteen. Burbank. It was Burbank, Washington, and I was. You know, I really, my home life was so unpleasant that I, I really, really wanted a job, and I wanted to get out of that, that house where everybody was always fighting. And, uh, and as soon as I could, I got, you know, the Francisco's busboy job, and I went to school, and then after that I started working in a movie theater, and I did that all through high school. And, uh, and that's where I had my friends. My friends were kind of the the misfits, the sort of two-headed babies from all the area high schools who really didn't have a social group, and they were all looking for jobs and independence. And so we all sort of came together in these workplaces that were much more sort of our social place than school ever was. When you went to college, your major was journalism. Did you know always that you wanted to write? I knew I wanted to write, but, you know, my sister wanted to be an artist. And my folks weren't going to pay for it. My folks just sort of gave us the financial aid applications. And they said, you know, you can't be an artist. So they talked my sister into getting a degree in anthropology. Well, there's a, there's a, that's a, <laughs> what's that wage? And that's why she sells real estate now. <laughs> and me, I wanted to be a writer. And my folks had no idea what that was. My dad worked as a brakeman on the railroad. And so they said, newspaper reporting is kind of writing, so do that. And they kind of directed me toward that. And so journalism seemed to be kind of a respectable form of writing. Um, so that's the only reason why I went there. Well, when you were doing this journalism, were you writing stories then? Were, were you writing down the stories of the two-headed babies you hung out with? No, I was, uh, I was doing a lot of freelance work for magazines and for newspapers and stringer work, and work for the local NPR affiliate. Right. Um, and it's kind of the way I write now is when you write for radio, you always have to read your copy out loud before it goes to the on-air person so that you know where it breaks down, where you've got too many S's together, where the sound of it just is going to trip them up and they're going to they just want to kick your butt because you gave them something to read live on air that didn't work. And so that really got me started really focusing on how things sounded. And then in Tom Spanbauer's workshop where I started writing fiction in my early 30s, Tom's emphasis was on how does the sentence sound and you always had to read your work out loud. So that NPR, KLCC, local affiliate stuff really paid off when I started writing fiction. Well, there's a little bit of gap of time there now between the time you get out of college and the time you're in your 30s writing fiction. What are you doing in between and how do you think that molded your point of view as a fiction writer? I was mostly doing Perkadans in between. So <laughs> <laughs> I really, you know, my folks had never been to college and all they knew was that you've got to go to college, you've got to go to college. And then beyond that first day in school, they were no help whatsoever and I had no idea what to do. So. I went to school, I got out of school, 
and instantly got the kind of blue-collar job that they'd always had. And I worked at Freightliner. And I worked at Freightliner thinking, I'm just going to do this until my student loans are paid off. And I ended up staying at Freightliner working on trucks for 13 years. And during that time, I was, I was bored, and I couldn't be high at work. So <laughs> I started writing secretly at work just to occupy my mind and to sort of distract myself from the boredom of my job. And, uh, and that's how I started writing. Well, what does a guy who's working at Freightliner write? And how do you get away with writing? What, are you writing in a little notebook or something? I mean... Spiral notebook. And that's still how I, how I work. Everything that I ever write is first written longhand in a notebook. Uh, and at work, we had to keep track of you know, uh, torque specs for different fasteners so that uh, you didn't tighten a bolt too tight and you didn't strip the threads on it. And so I have all these sort of greasy, smudged notebooks where the first, you know, 15 pages look very much like work, but beyond that, it's just Tyler Durden. Everything beyond that is just completely fiction. Once you decided to start taking writing seriously, you, you started up with Tom Spanbauer? Tom Spenbauer. Tell us, uh, how did you come in contact with this guy? I mean, you're working at Freightliner. Was he working at Freightliner, too? <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine Tom at Freightliner. Uh, I knew I needed to create sort of a social expectation. I can never do anything very long without roping a lot of other people into it so that they expect me to stay, stick with it. And you, you just kind of have to uh, really tell everybody, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer, so that for as long as it takes, they will come back to you and they will say, so how's that writing thing going? And it sticks in your, it sticks like a fork in your ribs and you just want to kill them. <laughs> but it makes you have to finally kind of, you know, stay with this thing. You have to achieve this thing first by telling people what you're up to. And I needed sort of a, a group of writers that would expect me to produce every week. And somebody put me in touch with these very nice ladies who wrote very nice stories. <laughs> and they were all about my mother's age. And so once a week, I went and I met with them. And everyone presented their work. And finally, after maybe six months, I presented a story that eventually became a chapter in Snuff about a kid having, you know, fucking a blow-up doll as it's gradually losing air from a, a small hidden place. And he's trying to get off before the doll goes completely flat. And these poor, nice ladies read this scene. And they said, you know, we really are not comfortable having They did. You, you know, please leave. <laughs> and one of them said a writer named Tom Spanbauer has just moved here and he studied at Columbia with this famous editor named Gordon Lish who really focused on, on crafting a style that people call minimalism and he was the editor for, for Raymond Carver he really sort of created the voice and the, the sort of reputation of Raymond Carver and some other minimalist writers like Amy Hempel and so they said, you know, Tom teaches in his kitchen every Thursday night. And so I called Tom, and Tom said 
It's 20 bucks an hour. You show up, you bring something to read. Everyone does the same. And, and he made, you know, just a great deal of cash under the table and supported himself teaching what Gordon Lish had taught him. And every week I got to go to a party where the price of admission was bringing a piece of writing to read out loud. Uh, and that's really where my writing started to come together. You know, you're doing some other things at this time, too. Um, landmark education. Oh. Tell me about Landmark. I, I, I've heard about it, but I don't know much about it. Boy, it's kind of like the elephant that the blind men touch. <laughs> um, at the time, I think when I was in my late 20s or early 30s, um, a friend invited me to do this culty thing. And I was invited to uh, hear a special introduction to the Landmark Forum. And I went, and, and these very nice people very enthusiastically invited me to do this thing. And, and I told them off, and I said, you know, I'm a journalism major. I know you people are full of shit, and this is just an evil cult, and you just want to enslave me. And, and I walked out. And I got halfway back to my car, and I realized, you know, I'm not even 30, and I'm already an old man. I, I am just so full of it. I really know what I know, and nobody's ever going to tell me otherwise, and, and I'm going to just stay this old, stuck person for the rest of my life. And I thought, you know, maybe sort of the, the key to, to not being that stuck old person is to take a chance. And I went back and I said, you know, I'm really sorry. I am so full of shit. Let me do your culty thing. <laughs> Chuck Palahniuk in a cult? I can't believe it. It was a terrific introduction to kind of existentialism. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of lit that fire and gave me the, the permission and a lot of the tools to start writing. And I hadn't planned to start writing until I was 65. I thought, you know, <laughs> I'll just do the Freightliner thing for 45 years. And then I'll write some fiction. And... And it was because of Landmark that I finally started writing when I was 31 or 32. Now, you were also working in a hospice, weren't you? Yeah. I, uh, I had gone to church one Christmas, and there was a giving tree. There was a, a Christmas tree, and it had paper ornaments. And you were supposed to take an ornament, and written on the ornament was, an, was sort of an act or a donation, something to do. And my ornament said, take a hospice patient on a date. All right. So I went to a hospice where everybody was dying. And they said, what can you do? And I said, I can't cook. I sure as hell am not, you know, changing bedpans or sponge bathing dying people. I can't do anything. And they said, can you drive a car? And I said, yeah. So I ended up being an escort and taking everybody to do what they wanted to do before they died. And so I would take these people in my Mercury Bobcat, which is just a Pinto. <laughs> if you get the deluxe interior package with the cloth seats, it's a Bobcat. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it's not like these people didn't have enough to struggle against. <laughs> they're dying of cancer and they're dying of AIDS and they want to see the ocean one more time, or they want to go to the top of Mount Hood, they're going to go in my Pinto. <laughs> and so when part of that job was uh, I had to take them to their support groups. 
And so I would take them to the basements of churches and they would sit in their support groups with all the other people who were, who were you know, in the terminal stages of the same thing. And I would sit there so I could take them back to the hospice. And, and I started to realize that people were being really nice to me. And I realized, oh, they think that I'm dying of what they're dying of. And there was no discreet way to say, oh, hey, you know, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm just visiting. Uh, not dying here. But you all just keep on dying without me, okay? <laughs> I'm just going to wait over here. I'm just here to take him back to the hospice. You can't say that. So I was stuck, and I just sort of smile and say, you know, not say anything and allow myself to be embraced and sort of participate on a quiet level. And I started to fantasize about somebody who would do that in order to feel better about their everyday sort of pointless stuck life. Because boy, afterwards, after being with all, you know, 25 dying people, the next day I would feel so good. <laughs> it's like, I took a solid shit today, wow. <laughs> These people are never going to have another solid crap, and then they're going to die. You know, just the smallest aspects of my life seemed like miracles. And so that was kind of the genesis of that aspect of Fight Club. You also joined a, a group called the Cacophony Society. Cacophony Society. Uh, tell us about the Cacophony Society, because I think that's a big deal for you. It was a Cacophony Society, and it started here in San Francisco, I think was something called the Suicide Club. And again, this is just my interpretation, but I, I saw it always as a kind of um, experiential potluck where members of the club would come up with these, these concepts for, for parties or pranks or, or big sort of shared games. And they would float these ideas to the other members of the club and the people who wanted to participate in these, these big events would all come together and and do crazy shit, like all dress as Santas and, and rampage all identical using the name Santa Claus, or would play croquet using 40-pound sledgehammers and bowling balls dressed as <laughs> Alice in Wonderland characters in a public park. And it was a way that people could schedule this kind of crazy surrealistic fun into their otherwise nine-to-five sort of postal clerk lives. People could, could live the everyday obligations that they had to live to pay the rent, to support their kids. But they could be crazy from like 5 o'clock on Saturday night till like 1 o'clock on Sunday morning. They could have these really perfect windows of chaos in their lives. And so in a way that, that inspired Fight Club uh, and it inspired Project Mayhem. So this idea of being able to sort of schedule in this insanity so the rest of your life was just perfectly even and, and exhausted. Sounds like a, a pre-internet uh, flash mob. You know, and I think these things have always been around in some way, but the way I was introduced to it was Cacophony Society. Let's talk a little bit about the people who were in your group with you, and, and your first novel, which we may never see uh, except in parts, Insomnia. The uh, first novel was a terrible gothic thriller 
And the only kind of surviving chunks, because mm -hmm. it's like a car. You never want to just throw the whole thing away. You keep it in the yard so you can take the parts off of it that still work. And one part was Marla's speech about the condom being the glass slipper of a generation. <laughs> that, you know, I still want to use that. So I used that in Fight Club. And then the scene where the, the guy unzips the back of the dress of the blow-up doll and the zipper snags her skin and he doesn't realize it until he's halfway to his orgasm and he, then he realizes this thing is shriveling like a raisin <laughs> underneath him. That was another scene from Insomnia. And so that finally got used in snuff, but that's really all that was worth saving. Well, what led you to just decide, hey, I'm Chuck Palahniuk, I'm gonna write a novel. I mean, what made you think you could do that? Well, you know, I think everybody, when they start writing, they think, I'm gonna write a novel. I'm gonna read everything that Stephen King has written. I'm gonna read everything that Gene All has written. And I'm gonna somehow combine those two forms. <laughs> because people like that. And I'm gonna write a whole novel. And if you don't know how to control and structure a short story, you sure as hell shouldn't be working on a novel because insomnia was 800 plus pages. <laughs> and it was dreadful. It just went on and on in the voice of Gene All and Stephen King. Just. <laughs> and so that was another gift of Tom Spanbauer's workshop because Tom said, you know, I'm not sitting here and listening to your, your novel. You're going to write a short story and you're going to write it in six, six or seven pages and you're going to make the whole thing happen in the time that, it, that you can read it uh, out loud to the rest of us. And if you can't make it happen in seven pages, then you're not going to go on to the novel. And so I really focused on short stories. And one of those short stories was Project Mayhem. Was Project Mayhem, it was the originally called Christmas Parties about the waiters peeing in the soup in the elevator. And I remember Tom used to, he would arrange these public readings for us because we would be so full of ourselves. And then he would book us at these sports bars where you had to go up there with all the hockey on the TVs behind you and the basketball <laughs> and people playing pool and people didn't give a shit that you wanted, you wanted to read this tender memoir of your cousin dying. And you had to stand on the pool table. And I still remember writers, friends of mine, standing up there and reading about their little brother dying of cancer and weeping and shaking so hard. And the people around them sitting there with pitchers of beer going, shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're blocking the TV. And you really get that people don't really give a shit. <laughs> they want what they want. And I read uh, that Christmas party story about the waiters in the elevator. And maybe a page into it, I realized that they turned the sound down on the TVs. And that the pinball machine wasn't making its noise anymore. And people were actually engaged in that horrible, dark, dirty little story. And. Uh, and it really changed my writing, you know. Um, when you started um, your next book was Invisible Monsters. Tell us a little bit about the, the genesis of that book. Invisible Monsters actually started the night of, uh, of the Rodney King 
verdict. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the verdict over the policeman in the beating incident. And I was in Seattle with some friends and we were gonna go to the top of the Space Needle. And I remember people driving around in the streets screaming and I remember hearing glass breaking because uh, people were breaking the windows out of the Bon Marche department store and Nordstrom's a couple blocks away. And we didn't realize this was going on. And so we went to the top of the Space Needle that night so we could be there before it closed at midnight. And I started to fictionalize the scene and it ultimately became a scene in Invisible Monsters where they go to the top of the Space Needle. And, uh, and after that, I just decided, you know, um, God bless Gene All and Stephen King, but if I'm never going to get paid for this, then I want to write exactly what I want to write, and I want to have a lot of fun doing it. And I want to use my writing as an excuse to research the things that I'm curious about and to do these things and to write them off on my taxes <laughs> and to be around people. I want to use my writing as an ongoing excuse to be with people and to talk to them about what they know best and to collect their stories because this isn't about writing a great book, it's about having a really great life. And if I'm never gonna get paid for it, I wanna have a really great life. Um, and that's how Monsters started. Oh my God, oh. Because in a way, every book functions as a scrapbook and I forgot that, oh, do as I say, not as I do. Because we used to drive up to Vancouver, British Columbia with all this ecstasy in our car <laughs> so that we could sell it in the clubs and then we would go to real estate open houses so that we could steal prescription drugs to sell them in the clubs. <laughs> and then we would come back from Canada with all of this cash. And, oh my God, you know, there's a point where you're really glad you did these things as a young person and didn't get caught. Because I sure as hell would not do that now. I, I, I'm glad. Well, you don't need to. Uh, I, <laughs> You know, one of the, you actually sold a Project Mayhem to Story Magazine, a and that's a that's a big manly deal in the in the short story world. Story is a, a is kind of an icon. How did you manage to do that? I mean, that's kind of a staid place, and it's not a staid story. You know, uh, Story Magazine really is a, sh a showcase, and it was back in the '40s, and it published some of the first work of you know Truman Capote and Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, and then it was revived in the late 80s during that sort of short story boom uh, by Lois Rosenthal in Cincinnati. And, uh, and I think my editor actually forwarded some of my chapters to Lois, and that's how that happened. And at the time, Lois was really on the lookout for, for new voices. She published the first stories by Juno Diaz, and so um, she really was looking for folks and the last I heard, Story Magazine has disappeared as well, that it's gone. It's hard times for short story writers these days. It's not easy. Um, you know, tell us, you tried to sell Invisible Monsters as, as a book, and you're, but you didn't get a great reaction on, from it, did, did you? Or they liked it, but they thought it was terrifying. Yeah, people really, editors, and, and the, the man who agreed to be my agent really enjoyed the story, mm -hmm. but they said that it didn't fit any of the existing marketing niches 
They wouldn't <laughs> know where to put it in bookstores. They, it was just too different. So it, it ultimately didn't sell and, uh, and subsequently became my third book. But, uh, but that's the excuse I was given that it, that it really didn't fit any of the existing audiences for books. You went on to take uh, Project Mayhem into turn it into the, the novel that became Fight Club. Um, why did you decide to blow that story out into a novel? That's kind of a dangerous thing, isn't it? I mean, to blow a short story out, you can bloat it. Well, you know, with Fight Club, I was still in Tom's group, and I needed to be able to write things in such a way that I, I would have a sense of completion week to week. And so I really focused on um, really key plot points as, as self-contained short stories. So I w wrote one short story about, uh, uh, about this club where people would go to engage in consensual fighting. And I wrote that one in an afternoon at work. I think probably a Thursday afternoon, knowing that I, I would have to present something at workshop that evening. And I wrote one short story about a guy that goes to support groups to feel better about his own life. And I wrote one short story about the waiters in the elevator. And in a way, I, I did these little figure studies about different specific aspects uh, of the plot so that I could, I could really get clear on who these people were and where the story was going to go. And then ultimately, I assembled all the short stories and I looked for the gaps where things needed to happen between things. And I just filled those gaps. And, and it was a way of, of writing an entire novel without going just batshit crazy and ending up with 850 pages. <laughs> that, you know, make it happen in six pages, make it happen in five pages, make it happen in seven pages, and be really specific about what that plot point had to do. Y you wrote, when you turned it into Fight Club, you wanted to make it even more disturbing than Invisible Monsters, right? I did, you know, because, you know, it was very flattering to have all of these people say, we love this book, we are, we are totally on board with publishing Invisible Monsters, and then a month later, go from 60 to zero with everyone saying, ultimately, no, no, it's not for us. And so I was resigned to the idea that I would never be published so I kind of gave up on the idea or the goal of being liked. And I thought, you know, there's something more important than being popular. If I can just be remembered, if I can just make an impression with a story rather than write to kind of, you know, pander and really make people like me, then, then maybe I'll at least have more fun. And so I wrote Fight Club with the idea that, you know, they're not going to publish this. That's nothing new. But they're not going to forget it either. And I think that's kind of the, the key in that public taste changes across time. And so if you can do something that is unsettling or different enough that it will linger in the public consciousness for long enough, that it will, will eventually be accepted and even kind of praised. And the key is to, to write something that will be lasting enough to achieve that uh, and not be readily embraced or discarded. Uh, and that's what ended up with Fight Club. Fight Club was 
optioned and quickly made into a movie. And, and at about the same time, um, your, your father was murdered. Could, could you talk about the se that sequence of events for you? It's kind of rockets in different directions. Boy, that was a uh, kind of a be careful what you wish for kind of thing. I remember when they were casting Fight Club and there was a lot of talk about Winona Ryder being the, the female lead and I mentioned it to my father over the phone and my father's my father, God bless him, he goes, uh, oh, Winona Ryder, she's hot. Could you introduce us? <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, Christ. You know, you never get one good thing without a bad thing. And I suddenly saw myself with my, my father hitting on Winona Ryder. And I thought, oh, how I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to keep my father and Winona Ryder apart. <laughs> and then one day I'm out working in the yard, and I had the cordless phone from the house, and the phone rings, and, and it's poor Holly, Holly Watson, who is like a 22-year-old publicist at W.W. Norton. And she says, uh, and it's a beautiful day in late May, uh, almost right now, and she says, uh, this, I'm hoping this is a joke, but I just got a call from the Latah County Detective's Office, and they found your father's car parked outside of a burned house, and there were the remains of some people inside who appear to have been murdered, and uh, can I pass them your number? <laughs> Will you call them? And I, and I felt so sorry for Holly to be put in this awkward, bizarre position, so I, and I called them back, and. And the next day, I was going up to Idaho with my father's dental records, and, uh, you know, that was that day. Chuck, it's been a pleasure speaking with you tonight. Oh, Rick, thank you. And I think we're going to go now to another contest. Well, actually, I was going to read the story I'd written for this evening. Oh, good. But we will get to the other contest. All right. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear Chuck Polnick read a story written for this evening. I hope you all brought your little plastic bags, and so in case you have to oh, no. throw up or pass out or experience other physical symptoms. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.